Hello and welcome back to the Moses and Methuselah podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis and in this series, Peter Silen and I draw on our many years of working in the financial markets to chew the fat about current topics of interest, whether it's stocks and shares, politics, diplomacy or even books and films into which we sometimes also wander. We hope that you'll find some value in our friendly but often very different perspectives, one continental, one UK-centric, on the big issues of the day. Well, Peter, here we are again with our what is now a regular fortnightly podcast, the Moses and Methuselah podcast. Inevitably, I think today we've got to kick off by talking about banks and the crisis or near crisis, perhaps, that we've just uh, had, which incorporated, among other things, the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and another signature bank, both quite large banks. They're not the largest in the largest superbank category. And we've also seen the enforced rescue, if you like, of Credit Suisse, which has been thrown into the arms of UBS, uh, its fellow too-big-to-fail Swiss bank. And obviously, we had a market reaction to those dramatic events. But this week, as we're speaking today, which is the 30th of March, that does appear to have stabilized somewhat. Would you agree, Peter, that the situation has stabilized, at least for now? I think it probably has stabilized for now, but for now is only since yesterday or the day before. I think it would be quite useful to go back to basics on this banking story and to analyze how we ever got to this situation. We haven't had a banking crisis since 2008, so that many of the young operators in today's financial markets don't remember that, and it hits them by surprise. You and I remember the last banking crisis as if it were yesterday, and we know that no crisis is identical to the previous or the next one. I think it's worth looking at how these things start, or at least how they start in today's markets. And the way that it happened is that the first thing that, let's say, a hedge fund manager or a speculator will do is that, let's take Deutsche Bank as an example. He will borrow shares in Deutsche Bank, then he will sell them short. And as soon as he's done that, he will then aggressively buy the credit default swaps on Deutsche Bank, which, as you know, is a form of insurance. And that pushes the price of the credit default swap way up in a very thin, unregulated and illiquid market, which is not on any clearing exchange. That, in turn, attracts the attention of the bank shareholders, who will then sell the bank and cause not only a collapse in the share price, but also cause very quickly, especially when it's accentuated through the social media, it then causes a run on that particular bank. And all that before we've even started the discussion about whether a bank like Deutsche Bank or a bank like Credit Suisse merits such a run on that bank. I just wanted to point that out at the very beginning of our discussion. Jonathan, does that sound familiar? Yes. I mean, I think that's one part of the scenario that led to these uh, situations. I think that's more true of the Credit Suisse situation than it is of the uh, Silicon Valley Bank situation, to be fair, because I think that started for slightly different reasons. And certainly a contributing factor was the way that Silicon Valley Bank's balance sheet was being managed. Uh, it was vulnerable to any kind of doubt about its future viability. So I think it's, it's a slightly more broader picture than that as far as I'm concerned, but you may well be right that the actual initial trigger 
for Credit Suisse at least, was an attack on the shares. But it doesn't mean to say that those attacks would only really work on a permanent basis if there is at least some substance to the issues that the uh, hedge funds might be using to justify their action. I don't think it's just a case of raiders sort of causing threats to the financial system. That wouldn't be the way that I would see it anyway. But uh, is that what you're implying? What I'm probably more than implying is that this banking crisis is accompanied by certain factors which the last banking crisis was not accompanied by. And in particular, I'm thinking about the social media immediacy via the social media platforms, which will do the job in a matter of minutes. And back in, I think it was in October of last year, maybe it was in November, there was an Australian journalist who made some, if you like, not disparaging comments about Credit Suisse, but comments where he questioned the viability of the bank. That spread within minutes and caused heavy losses in the share price for the next day or two. And then things started to stabilize. So I think it is one of the reasons why today's crisis is different. The other thing I would say is that obviously every bank has a slightly different business model. And I think that the way that the situation unraveled at the Silicon Valley Bank, the reasons why and the consequences were actually completely different from the debacle surrounding Credit Suisse and the UBS solution, because Credit Suisse suffered from all sorts of headwinds, but they didn't suffer from the mismatch of assets and liabilities that Silicon Valley suffered from. And yet the result was the same. The result is you had the collapse of two major banks, Silicon Valley Bank, the 16th biggest bank, Signature Bank, not much behind. The result has been the same, but it's quite interesting to unpick the reasons why it happened and also the solutions. And it may be, to come back to your question, it may be that the reason why bank shares have not only stabilized recently, but actually rallied quite hard is because they did find a solution to these two examples and other examples, which prevented the need of a banking resolution Lehman style, you know. So the Swiss were doing everything to prevent a resolution Lehman style. And the Americans then, of course, had a different solution again. I just find it's quite interesting what all this did. We can talk about that later. But we can compare what this did to bond yields compared with what the debacle in the UK last September under Liz Trust did to the yields of gilts. It's quite an interesting comparison. Yes, I think that's true. I guess one has to say that uh, all crises are different and they all have slightly different factors behind them. I think the situation with Credit Suisse, though, you have to say that one of the preconditions of Credit Suisse being vulnerable to share price or a bank run or whatever you like to call it in this case, a collapse in the share price, has been the fact that it's been incredibly poorly managed for a number of years and is uh, too big to fail but is, uh, frankly, too bad to be rescued, if I can put it that way. I mean, without that precondition, then I don't think any attack on the share price would have been uh, as effective. Whereas, similarly, in the case of the Silicon Valley Bank, you know, it is clear that the management made a serious mistake by removing all the hedging of interest rate movements. They weren't expecting the movements they saw to happen, which really uh, damaged them. And equally, I think they were still in the process of 
hiring new either chief financial officer or chief risk officer or whatever they call them in the bank. And that may have something to do with the fact that they took their eye off the ball as far as their interest rate exposure was concerned. So I think in both cases, you know, you do need a precondition of management failures in some respects in order to generate the possibility of a banking crisis. But you are right. I mean, the response to the authorities in both cases, I think, has been successful in stemming anyway, certainly a risk of a kind of systemic run on banks and a total collapse in confidence. But they have approached it in very different ways, I think, as you were implying. So perhaps we should just mention, first of all, it's more recent, though, the way that the Swiss authorities decided, and the Swiss Central Bank and presumably the government was also kept informed of all this, the way that they engineered a resolution of the problems at Credit Suisse by effectively forcing through a merger with UBS, but on terms that are quite controversial, were they not? To put it mildly, Jonathan, and I can guarantee you that Switzerland is under a very dark cloud at the moment. And I can also guarantee you that there's going to be a deluge of lawsuits, probably against Credit Suisse, but about whoever. And to try and put this into context, which is really very interesting, obviously, as you've just said yourself, and you're completely right, Credit Suisse has been suffering from a drip, drip erosion of confidence for many years. They were involved in a one scandal after the other, including tax evasion by the US authorities. They were accused of aiding and abetting tax evasion. They were involved in the Greensill scandal. They were involved in the Archegos scandal. They were involved in the private detective scandal of a couple of years ago. So it was one scandal after the other, which eroded and eroded trust which you can see in the share price. Just look at the chart for the last 20 years. It's a nightmare. It's a horror story. So the trust was just going down and down. But if you go deeper, for example, into the balance sheet, you'll see that actually there are various ratios, tier one capital, liquidity ratio, leverage ratio, were actually quite okay. They were quite sound. But what I found bordering on the shocking is that in the tier one capital, they had what's called um, contingent convertible bonds, otherwise known as AT1 bonds. And these bonds are relatively new invention. And the principle is that under certain conditions, when the share price goes down and down, the bond holders can convert their bonds into equity, and then they can become shareholders. And what it says in the prospectus of these contingent convertible, otherwise known as cocoa bonds, buried in the prospectus, it says that if there should be a what they call a viability event, which means an emergency event, then contrary to other bondholders, these bondholders can have not just a haircut, but they can have a complete cranial shave and they can lose everything. And Of course, that is exactly what happened. So that was the first scandal. The second scandal was that neither the parliament of Switzerland nor the shareholders of Credit Suisse were ever asked for their approval. The shareholders, obviously, for their approval of the reversal into UBS and the parliament for its approval for the billions and billions of guarantees that the government had backstopped the deal with. And um, these are the reasons why Switzerland has been described as a banana republic, because it is only in a banana republic that you will unilaterally, over the weekend, disenfranchise some very important actors 
in that whole scenario. So that is something that I found pretty shocking. I never liked contingent convertible bonds in the first place, but that I found pretty shocking. And I understand why they had to do it, because otherwise on Monday morning, there would have been a meltdown in the Asian markets. You see, so this is a different scenario from what happened with Silicon Valley Bank. I take your point, absolutely. And I think the only argument you can justify it is is sort of force majeure. In other words, uh, somebody has to take responsibility for the greater economic and societal risk that would happen if the bank had collapsed uh, or whatever as a result of not being able to find a solution before the markets opened. I don't know about the Swiss parliament, but you'd be struggling to get a, approval from the UK parliament in 24 hours or even <laughs> several weeks, frankly. But um, that's a, a practical matter, but uh, I can see it has ramifications. I mean, the shareholders actually, you know, haven't been wiped out there. That's the other aspect of this story. They're actually getting something still out of this rescue because they haven't been totally wiped out, which is what you would expect if the cocoa nuts, if I can call them that, would, would be wiped out as well, which they have been. So uh, that was, I think, genuinely controversial as far as bondholders are concerned. I mean, the shareholders, I think, seem to perhaps have got less of a complaint about not being consulted. Though, of course, do you think the uh, behavior of that Saudi financier who said they weren't going to put any more equity in credit seats was also a factor in this? I mean, he's lost his job since then, so uh, somebody's not happy about the way he behaved. Yes, that's the Saudi National Bank that owned 9.9% of Credit Suisse itself is owned by the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund. And uh, I don't know on what occasion the head of the Saudi National Bank, it's not the central bank, by the way, it's just called Saudi National Bank. On whatever occasion, he stated that he was no longer prepared to support Credit Suisse financially. That, of course, caused immense damage immediately. But then when he was asked to justify that, he said that it was for regulatory reasons, because if you have more than 10% of the bank, then obviously you have to disclose all sorts of other things that you don't have to disclose if you have less than 10%. Whether that was just an excuse or not, I don't know. And of course, it's irrelevant now, but it's funny how one sentence can cause such an avalanche. It's like if you're in the mountain skiing and it's full of deep snow and you talk too loudly and it causes an avalanche, a little bit like that. So it's a technicality, but the result was what it is. Yeah, well, it was either, I think, naivety or perhaps just um, reality. But anyway, yeah, he's certainly uh, no longer doing what he was doing just over a week ago. A couple of issues before we move and talk about the American banking situation. We touched on this briefly last week. Switzerland is not part of the EU, and therefore they're not subject to EU banking regulations and so on. The EU or the ECB, whichever it is, I'm not entirely clear, came out and said that the problem with cocoa investors would not apply across the EU, or at least so they said. What do you think the implications of that are for the EU banks, just uh, in passing? Yeah, it's a very good question, because the way that the Swiss solved this problem, it, it was ruthless. Some would say it was cowboy. Others would say it's Banana Republic, but it did result in the maintenance of Credit Suisse as a bank and the UBS. However, UBS is now so big that it's not only too big to fail, its assets are three times, I think it's three times or two and a half times the size of the Swiss gross national product. I mean, if you just pause and think about that. Now, with regard to the Eurozone that you're mentioning, 
It's a very good question. If I was a president of the European Central Bank, I don't think I would have made that kind of comment because can you imagine what would happen if, let's say, Paribas or Société Générale or someone found itself in the same situation as Credit Suisse? I just cannot imagine that the European Central Bank plus the European Commission and with no government involved, because there is no European government, really, apart from the European Commission, that they would have produced at such short notice a pan-European solution to the problem of if one major European <laughs> bank goes down, you know. And we discussed last time, you and I, that the problem with the European banking system is that it doesn't have a proper banking union and fiscal union and all these other unions, which they should have had by now within the economic and monetary union. So seen like that, it's very lucky that the Swiss were able to solve their problems so quickly without asking anyone else. And so, of course, they probably pat themselves on the back saying this is the advantage of having stayed outside of the European Union. I don't know. And the final question on the Credit Suisse one, I think, for the moment is, have UBS got a good deal or not? We don't know, obviously, how bad the problems are inside Credit Suisse, nor how quickly they can be resolved. Obviously, quite a few people are going to get fired, and they're going to try and get rid of, I think, most of the investment banking side of the firm and concentrate on the wealth management business, which is their main strategic arm anyway at the moment at UBS. But they've got an awful lot of work to do to the extent that they've had to bring back their old CEO in order to deal with all the problems because he's deemed to be more suited to that task than the current CEO who was looking at other things. Do you think that uh, UBS have bought a pig in a poke or have they actually uh, got a very good deal? There seems to be two views on that. I mean, they didn't pay very much for it, obviously, but they've either got something very valuable or they've uh, landed themselves with a whole heap of problems. And we do know you know, looking back to the 2008 crisis, though, as you say, this is not really parallel to that particular crisis. You know, it was the mergers and the uh, uh, the putting together of Lloyds and, and HBOS, for example, that led them even further into trouble. So I wonder what your quick reaction on that would be. I think it's quite good that they brought back Sergio Ermotti, who was a Swiss uh, from Ticino, who ran the bank for a long time until three years ago. Did UBS want to buy Credit Suisse? Definitely not. Did they push back? Very much so. Why did they do it in that case? Because they were reminded by the Swiss government that back in 2010, I think it was, or eight, the Swiss government bailed out to the tune of billions and billions the UBS as it was at the time. And so the result of all this 15 years later is that the Swiss government is in a very good position to tell UBS what to do. So it wasn't voluntary, this takeover of Credit Suisse. It was mandatory. And you can already see the government interfering all the way down in the running of Credit Suisse. They are now dictating to Credit Suisse with regard to their remuneration policies, and they're leaning on them to abolish bank bonuses, which have been promised, or to claw back bank bonuses from the senior bankers. And that interference is going to go all the way up to UBS. And so I think Sergio Ermotti is probably the right man, but he'll have to be very subtle in juggling the requirements of the Swiss government with the on-the-ground requirements in the real banking world 
of UBS. As for what you asked about whether they got a good deal, if you look at the share price compared with the book value, yes, it's a good deal because it's a fraction of the book value. But is it really such a good deal? Who can tell what the book value is of a bank like Credit Suisse at a time like this? So they're clinging on to that. But I think it was probably at the end of the day, it was the least bad option that we've got on the table. Yes, it may be worth just saying before we move on to the US situation that, of course, Sensible investors like yourself, Peter, uh, you don't invest in banks, and nor do other investors like uh, Terry Smith and so on at Fundsmith, who say that, frankly, it's impossible to know what the health of a bank is at any given point. They have to publish ratios, and the regulators have to monitor them very closely now because they are too big to fail. But actually, what you're actually investing in as a shareholder is pretty much an unknown quantity, and it's therefore vulnerable to all sorts of things happening about which you are unable to form judgments because banks are both so big and they're so opaque their accounts are very difficult to disentangle, even if you believe the numbers. So uh, I don't suppose this episode has uh, prompted you to go looking to invest in banks, even though you weren't doing that before. Luckily enough, we are guided by what we call our 10 golden rules of quality growth investing. And if you look through those 10 golden rules, there's not a single rule that is applicable to the banks as a whole. It doesn't matter whether it's European or American banks. One of the things you want to move the discussion westwards across the Atlantic, and I think it's a good moment to do that. The Silicon Valley debacle was, apart from the fact that what we didn't mention earlier, is that their depositor base was heavily concentrated. In other words, there was a very small number of depositors who spoke for a very big percentage of total deposits. And they were all from the venture capital startup tech world in that part of the world. But they also knew each other very well. And therefore, as soon as doubt was expressed in the heart of one of these investors, it very, very quickly permeated all the others. And so it wasn't just a mismatch of assets and liabilities. It was also this lack of diversification and the bulk risk in their depositor base. I think uh, we should zero in a little bit on the mismatch of assets and liabilities, because what you and I might have been worried about is the fact that it is a habit of banks to borrow short term through their depositor base and to lend long term by buying long bonds and long duration bonds and so forth. And when you have a normal yield curve, that brings you a net interest margin, a positive net interest margin. When the yield curve flattens and reaches an inverted state, like it's never been since 1981, where the difference between short paper and long paper is more than 1%, then it's an alarm bell. And uh, that's exactly what happened. They borrowed short, lent long, as you mentioned earlier, without hedging that risk. And then suddenly they found that when the run on their deposits happened, they very soon didn't have the capital and the money, and they found themselves in a negative liquidity situation. It's because of the mismatch of assets and liabilities. And also the speed and the scale of the withdrawals 
that took place or the requested withdrawals that took place, which undoubtedly probably was influenced by social media and the influence of, you know, the closeness of the network. So as soon as someone like Peter Thiel came out and told his companies that they should uh, think about taking money out of Silicon Valley Bank, the news was round town like a, a wildfire, if you like, round California, where most of this activity is. So that was a kind of, as you say, exactly like uh, someone shouting uh, avalanche and everybody heading for the exit. And the scale of the withdrawals was very uh, extreme because of the, as you say, not just the concentrated nature of the clients, if you like, or the people who had money in the bank, but also the fact that they were a very close network. The testimony we've heard this week from uh, Congress about the speed at which money was about to go out uh, certainly helps to explain why that particular bank got into trouble. Though, as I said, if they had hedged their interest rate risk, which they had been doing until about a year previously, they wouldn't have had quite the same problems as they did have. And the fact that these uh, allegedly sophisticated investors, you know, these uh, backers of VCs who made huge amounts of money out of backing companies uh, in early stage and growing some of the tech giants we know today, the fact that they either hadn't noticed or hadn't asked the question suggests that uh, they'd taken their eye off the ball too. And I think that's a factor too. I mean, this was an episode that should not have happened. Let's, let's put it that way. It should not have happened in the way that it did uh, and certainly on the scale that it did. I don't know if you agree with that, but that would be my perspective on that. Yes, I completely agree with you. And before we say, okay, the crisis is now past, the bank shares have rallied, the governments have stepped in. And although we don't know what's going on in the hundreds of regional banks across the US, which probably a lot of them have the same or similar mismatch of assets and liabilities, I don't know. But the governments in America and in Switzerland have stepped in, which is, you know, it's probably good for the time being. But think of this. I tried to inquire last week. We've seen the situation in America. We, we know a bit about the situation in Europe. We can find out a little bit about the situation in Japan. But what about the situation in China? I think I'm right in saying that of the five biggest banks in the world, four of them are Chinese. They are huge, they're immense. But if you try and find out whether there is a similar situation going on in China, you know, mismatch, bank runs, what have you, there is simply no way that you can find out. You're just not going to find out. And uh, this worries me because there could be all sorts of things happening there that we don't know about, in particular because the Chinese are world champions at distorting the statistics. So that is, for me, a big question mark. I don't want to cause uh, undue anxiety, but it's definitely something that we should not let disappear from our radar screen. No, I think that's a very good point. I think the other point, of course, is that, as some people have pointed out, the problem of potential bank runs and the problem of potential insolvencies, not just liquidity crisis in banks, is a function of the way that the banking system runs. We have a fractional banking system, which means that uh, if all the deposits are taken out of a bank, all the uh, liabilities are met, you know, every bank would be bust effectively. It relies on an element of trust for the banking system as we know it in the modern world to exist. And then that leads us on to this question of accounting. I mean, as you say, <laughs> I dare say that the accounts of Chinese banks are even more bizarre and inscrutable, perhaps is the word I should use, than they are with Western banks. But... Um, I mean, there is this problem, which is with banking uh, generally, which is why you need confidence and why you need insurance for deposits. And of course, that's one of the big issues that's come out of all this is 
the question of whether or not central banks should effectively ensure all deposits of all size at banks. They've always been resistant historically to do that because they on the view that uh, people who have lots of money in a bank should be able to look after themselves and uh, shouldn't be given, if you like, a guarantee. Uh, I mean, that's still a live issue in the US, I think, because Janet Yellen has been kind of trying to find a formal words implies that effectively people who have money in smaller banks above a certain limit will all be protected effectively if there is a run on the bank without actually saying that it's going to be applied to all uh, deposits across the whole banking system. And of course, the cost of saying that would be quite profound. If you did actually say, we're going to insure all deposits, effectively, you are, in a way, kind of nationalizing the banking system. So there are going to be some unintended consequences of this particular crisis at Silicon Valley Bank and the other banks that we've seen suffering. And it's not necessarily uh, positive. Among other things, it's also presumably going to make life tougher for a number of people who have borrowed money from the banks, not just the clients of Silicon Valley Bank, which, as we know, has been lending money to uh, venture capitalists who are backing companies which are early stage and need lots more money. They're going to have to be refinanced at, at a higher cost and so on. So there's going to be real world implications from this, even though the banks themselves may have been stabilized. There's going to be some longer term consequences for this, which probably won't be positive. In particular, what I don't think is particularly positive is that the old rule of caveat emptor, buyer beware, seems to have gone completely out of the window. I mean, how often do you hear those two words nowadays? You don't, very, very rarely, maybe from a lawyer's mouth. I think it would be very useful if the population were fully aware of the fact that if they have a deposit in a bank, they're lending the bank some money. They're lending their bank money. And maybe now that realization has actually improved, increased in the last couple of weeks, because there was something like 300 billion US dollars that moved out of banks into money market funds, which is a lot of money. And it's the same in, in Europe and in the UK and so forth. I think that every boardroom in the world will have had this discussion. How much cash do we have in the bank? Ooh, that's much too much. Let's take three quarters of it out and put it into money market funds. And what I found not very good in the US is last week, Chairman Powell of the Federal Reserve, he said that all deposits would be guaranteed. And on the same day, Janet Yellen said, all deposits in the US banks will not be guaranteed. That, of course, caused a major stock market decline, at least on that day it did. So I think that um, this concept of socializing losses, but not the profits, is going to be the discussion. And I think that if you guarantee all depositors, at the end of the day, you are socializing losses as well. And in the end, the taxpayer will have to pay the price in the end. So, Jonathan, it's an ongoing discussion. I don't really know... But the thing is that Silicon Valley Bank, although it's the 16th largest bank, its assets were underneath the level beyond which they would have had to have more stringent capital requirements. If you remember, we ascertained last time that it was first President Obama and then President Trump who partially rolled back the Dodd-Frank Banking Reform Act, which if they hadn't done that, then I could imagine 
that the Silicon Valley Bank debacle might not have happened because their capital base would have been stronger. And so now, of course, the discussion is back about whether they're going to wind back the wind back arrangements under Obama and Trump. So I don't think we've seen the end of this discussion at all, John. No, and uh, the other point I, which I read about this week, which I thought was interesting, is that not only are you know people who put their money in the bank are perhaps not aware that they're lending money, and they're also lending money effectively and not getting any interest for it, so which is why they finally started to move their money away from banks, because there are now better alternatives in money market funds, indeed in government bonds, certain government bonds anyway. But also I noticed, so I read anyway, I wasn't aware of this until now, that the Federal Reserve is in due course going to be introducing a new system by which you can transfer money from one bank to another uh, under a federal payment scheme before the transaction has actually been, as it were, kind of formally uh, checked and completed. And if that's true, and that comes into play, taking into account social media as well, that's just going to increase the likelihood that uh, you will get bank runs. You know, if people can whisk out their money immediately from a bank without it having to be cleared, that's going to, uh, you know, heighten the risk in the system. Uh, one can easily see how that could uh, develop into another problem, which in turn might then drive the authorities to take uh, even more control over the banking system, which may or may not be a good thing, depending on your point of view. I mean, some people say that actually we should entirely separate the system so that the payment system is controlled by the government and uh, the banks are then just free to lend and to fail as they see fit. So I think there's a lot of issues here. And um, of course, the worry is that given where what's been happening the last couple of years, this might be one of the harbingers of more trouble to come. Uh, the fact that we've had this banking issue, even though it's not going to be another rerun of the 2008, as far as we can tell, because it's not the bad loans, as far as we know, that's going to be the problem, or the synthetic products that they were dealing in before the, the global financial crisis. But there does seem to be a closer parallel with what happened to the savings and loans institutions back in the early 90s, when they all uh, got into trouble, when interest rates were going up. The last time we had a very uh, serious increase in interest rates uh, like we're having at the moment. So there's uh, plenty of things to think about, I think, even if the immediate risk is not as great as uh, some people, I think, at first thought when we had all these problems emerging. You put your finger on so many different points, very interesting points and very important ones. And I don't know, the more extreme mists among my friends who observe the situation are asking themselves, well, why do we need banks at all? Why can't the central bank be everybody's banker? Because the central bank can't go bankrupt. The central bank can print money at will. And if it makes a balance sheet or a profit and loss account loss, doesn't matter. So who needs the intermediary, which is the bank? And the banking system has been disintermediated slowly but surely, like a Chinese water torture for the last 20 to 25 years. So who needs them? But of course, that's easier said than done. And your point about the payments is also an interesting point. But then, of course, the more is run by the government, the more the private capitalist is disintermediated as well. And the less one will hear the expressions caveat emptor, I don't know. I suspect, Jonathan, that it's something that we will be talking about for quite a long time as we watch this unravel, not to mention the Chinese situation that we discussed, but also not forgetting what I call the hidden corners. The hidden corners are those who took up the baton when the Dodd-Frank Banking Reform Act was put into place 
And so these unregulated shadow banks, which took up the baton, and they're still there. And of course, it's not very transparent what's going on there. And it could blow up at any time. And it'll be just as much as a surprise as all the other surprises we've had. So these are the things, in my opinion, to watch. Absolutely. I mean, the banks that we've been talking about are basically, uh, they account for a much smaller share of the provision of finance around the world than they did uh, as a direct result of what happened in the global financial crisis. You're absolutely right. And so we're talking about hedge funds, we're talking about uh, all sorts of other institutions which fall outside the regulatory net, as you say. I mean, you have to think that the conventional banks, because they're under such scrutiny, and because they've had to tighten up their capital ratios and so on, they're really under scrutiny. You'd think you could trust the risks that they pose uh, more easily than you can gauge the risks that these other elements of the shadow banking system pose. And I think that has to be logically the case. So if there are problems going to come up in the banking system, you can be sure as uh, eggs is eggs that we're going to see problems cropping up in other parts of the world, and not least in uh, fund management, in uh, hedge funds, and in private equity, and of course, debt investors. So I mean, there's a lot at stake here. And if things do get tough for the banks, you can be sure that there'll be wider problems in the financial system globally as well, before you even think about the Chinese banks and what they might be up to. So I think you have plenty more to talk about the implication, but I think for the moment, we can bring this particular conversation to an end by saying that um, we've got a much better understanding of what happened in the last three weeks. But unfortunately, while the system has been stabilized, there's still plenty of unresolved issues and things that uh, if you were minded to worry about the state of the world, you would probably... uh, need to add one or two of them to your list. I don't know if you'd agree with that. I do. And what I'd be very interested to discuss at our next discussion in a couple of weeks is actually what's going on in the fixed income markets. You know that it's one of my favorite subjects, but the way that the bond markets have been behaving in the last couple of weeks is very interesting. And I think at the next discussion, we will find out whether the way that bond markets have held up in price and the yields have held down in in yield, whether this was actually merely the result of short covering or whether it actually signals something pretty fundamental with regard to inflation and um, interest rate expectations and so on. Because that will then set the tone in the stock markets for the rest of the year. You're absolutely right about that. And it's a subject we must return to and I think will return to. So thank you, Peter. That brings us to the end of this particular episode of the Moses and Methuselah podcast. We've given the banking system a thorough going over. It is an opaque system, though, so we probably haven't got into every nook and cranny, but uh, at least we've done our best. And uh, we'll look forward to continuing this discussion in due course. I look forward to that a lot, Jonathan. Many thanks. You have been listening to the Moses and Methuselah podcast, hosted by Jonathan Davis and Peter Silen. These podcasts are independently edited and produced. You can subscribe to them on most leading podcast channels or by signing up on the Moneymakers or Eminem podcast website. Please note that these podcasts are provided for information and background only and should not be regarded as constituting professional investment advice.